Hello, everybody, and welcome back once again to Dirty Sexy History. My name is Jessica Kale, and as you know, apart from doing this, I'm also a writer. While you're world-building in historical romance and historical fiction, one of the best ways to bring the past to life is through little details of everyday things. Engaging the senses makes the story feel real for readers, and one sense that is often overlooked is smell. What did the past smell like? You might think of sweat and dirt and chamber pots, but do you think of tobacco? What did smelling salts actually smell like? What was the water like in bath? And how did people bathe before showers? We're covering all that and more today with Dr. Emily Friedman, author of Reading Smell in 18th Century Fiction. Now, this episode is a bit of a gift to the writers in the audience, and I know we have quite a few of you. Hey, guys. And of course, some of this you might already know, but other things might surprise you. We are talking about snuff, what it is and how one takes it, different types of smelling salts and their effects on the body over time, the downside to burials inside churches, Queen Charlotte's bad habits, and even Marie Antoinette's perfume. Emily's book covers all this and more, so if you'd enjoy today's episode, pop over to our Instagram for a discount code you can use on a copy of your own. It is a great read and well worth adding to your personal library. Without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Emily Friedman. All right, everybody, my guest today is Dr. Emily Friedman, author of Reading Smell in 18th Century Fiction. Emily, welcome to the show. Hello, it's such a pleasure to be here. Well, we are so glad to have you. This book is absolutely fascinating, and it is just so beautifully written. Um, how did you become interested in the history of smell? Well, one of my colleagues here, uh, Rupa Mishra, who's an early modernist, had a fabulous vintage perfume collection that she'd built from going to estate sales. And when I was writing articles, kind of trying to move my way into a, a full book project that I thought was going to be on endings in the 18th century novel, I became really fascinated when she recommended to me um, Perfumes the Guide, which was then written by Luca Turin and now is written by him and Tanya Sanchez, um, which is all these micro reviews, like one or two to two sentences of modern perfumes. And I fell down the rabbit hole of perfume blogs and I found myself really fascinated by the idea that we have to explain smell through language because unlike everything else that's transmissible across the internet, we don't have smell-o-vision in a meaningful way. And so I became really fascinated by smell language and I thought, oh, I'll write an article. I never wrote an article, I wrote a book. Oh my God. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, uh, oops, uh, it became a whole a whole book, uh, which is very, which is very cool. Um, and along the way, both found myself in archives, handling smelly materials, as well as like prints and drawings and, and people's writings. Uh, and then when the archives would close, I would go and talk about all of the secondary literature and smell with like at Neiman Marcus or other department stores where the perfume counter folks can get certified as experts by reading the same books that I was reading you know, for my research. Wow. Uh, so I would, we would trade uh, kind of study guides uh, while I came home with a haul of perfume samples. Uh, very sweet deal, I have to say. 
Yeah, gosh, that sounds incredible. So looking into the sense of a particular era must be a whole different level of detective work. I mean, that's not something, you know, by its very nature that that lasts, really. So how did you research the book and what was your biggest challenge? So the challenge is, of course, that I can actually find materials from the period and encounter them with my nose in many cases. And sometimes you can't. Uh, ambergris is really hard uh, to get a hold of unless you know somebody. I knew somebody. But even though I'm, you know, smelling what my colleague calls whale hork with my own <laughs> nose, my nose is a 21st century nose, sometimes a 20th century nose. It is, you know, accustomed to certain things in the atmosphere and certain things not being present, right? We have much better plumbing than the 18th century did, uh, which is to say we have it at all. Uh, we also have kind of uh, the introduction of sense into our spaces that the 18th century knows would not know. So I'm encountering, you know, when I encounter ambergris, I can't get back into that headspace. So what I have to do is figure out, okay, so what evidence do we have in what people were writing about and how they were using smells as metaphors to understand the meanings of these scents over time? Because what we know is our sense of smell is the one sense that bypasses all of our higher order cognitive processing. It hits us viscerally. It, it goes straight to our kind of reactions because it's designed to help us understand what's new in the space around us, what's novel, and thus assess whether it's a threat or not. Uh, it's our danger sense in a very real kind of way. And so what's novel to me is not what's novel to the 18th century knows. And so figuring out what's coming into being, what's changing in the period uh, became really important. And so I joke that this book the chapters of this book were not the chapters I thought I was writing, but instead it emerged that these were the scents that were in transition that would have been noticeable to the 18th century smeller, reader, watcher, listener. Yes, absolutely. Now, I think a lot of people, when they think about this period, they, they just assume that it just smelled bad across the board, mm. right? You know, like they, they repeat this false idea that nobody ever bathed, you know, that kind of thing. We've all heard it before, but it is sure. a bit more complicated than that. So, so very broadly, what did the 18th century actually smell like? Uh, man, I wish I knew. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I wrote a whole book and I, I can't really say for sure and for certain in the same way that I often ask my students, what is the smell of air conditioning? It has a smell. None of us can articulate it because it's, if you've grown up like I did in the United States South in the 20th and 21st century, it's so pervasive that it's no longer something that my nose perceives. And so I think what's really interesting is there's all these experiments with trying to like recreate Marie Antoinette's perfume or museums that try to recreate the smells of different time periods. And the thing that's missing is literally like what would not be noticed uh, by the the smellers. So what we can kind of say is 
that we as time travelers might ex like if you were writing a a time travel work of fiction your you know uh your protagonist might notice things that all the people around them are like we we don't notice it's not part of our kind of uh, you know, set of awarenesses of novelty. Uh, so uh, that's, that's the tricky part is like, okay, what is it to whom does it smell? Um, and so I think about uh, my, my girl, Frances Burney, great novelist, uh, Virginia Woolf famously, famously said that uh, Jane Austen should put flowers on the grave of Frances Burney. Uh, Virginia Woolf, a rare moment where she's just wrong because Burney actually writes before, during, and after Austen's career. A uh, great chronicler, great uh, inspiration for Austen. And Burney uses smell a whole lot in ways that Austen doesn't. And she talks about kind of what we might think of as like, the cloud of axe body spray equivalent in the 18th century she notes uh in one of her heroines smells a guy approaching her before uh she actually like engages with him because <laughs> he's he's throwing snuff around he's you know got he's throwing he's splashing himself with eau de toilette you know he's becoming this multi-layered kind of scent bomb across so in terms of what people are noticing i think they're noticing artificial smells and kind of enhancements that are coming into increasing fashion uh, across the period there's a change in the way that tobacco is being consumed uh, that I know we'll probably talk a fair amount about. But so, you know, depending on when in the 18th century you're talking about, you know, you might be in a scenario where kind of like, you know, the, the 70s or 80s in the US where no one notices the all pervasive cigarette smoke because tobacco is everywhere. Uh, and so it's, not, it's part of the wallpaper. Or if you're in one of the times when snuff is the most fashionable thing, tobacco is very much the scent of very specific spaces, um, kind of masculine spaces, generally speaking, that sort of thing, um, when smoking becomes gendered in that kind of way. Uh, so yeah, so I mean, the, the answer as all of these things often are, especially when an academic is answering a question is, it's complicated. <laughs> it is yeah and you and you touch on so many different exciting things in the book they're so interesting so in the 17th and 18th centuries a number of works were published that look into sensation you mm. mentioned uh, john locke samuel johnson and rousseau among others so how did people think of smell at this time and how was that understanding changing yeah, it's important to remember that in this period, there was a real sense that your whole body is perceiving things, right? Your, the idea of sight is that literally beams are shooting into your eye and doing a thing. And the notion that the air around you has the ability to change you is one that really doesn't die off entirely across the whole period which is why you hear like people talking about oh i need to go take the air or the good air um conversely you get a lot of talk in this period that's highly prejudiced around uh the so-called torrid zone the middle of 
uh, the, the globe, the kind of hot portions, either the Southern Mediterranean and then further down, as well as like places like the Caribbean. And the idea is that it's not only the heat, but the, the heat in co combination with the air makes it hazardous to be around because it's not the notion of smell as something that's coming in through your nose, but that you are, it's your entire body is kind of permeated by uh, kind of the air around you, the atmosphere. Um, this is a completely rational uh, response to the fact that for, you know, the last previous several centuries, we are talking about a uh, a plague that comes back in kind of wave regular waves that is spread that as we I believe we now know um, it's it was an airborne illness uh, and so all of the kind of preparations whether they were effective or not and some of them were and some of them weren't but the idea was the air can indeed be hazardous to you and indeed you know close spaces like spaces where um, you're shut up, uh, you know, are more hazardous. Also because of things like CO2 buildup if your fire isn't, you know, drawing in the way that it should. Um, so the 17th and 18th century kind of space and people are kind of making rational observations about the understandable hazards of the air around them and trying to do what they can about them. Um, not necessarily through a complete understanding of what's working physiologically. It's, you know, the the kind of how did they get to that conclusion is not based in in what we would consider to be an accurate understanding of the bodily body's functions. But it is accurate in sense of the air is bad and we need to do something about it. Uh, and we see that kind of come to its full flower in the 19th century when we get a lot more kind of investment in both purifying the water and trying to clean the air as London is smokier and smokier and uh, the big manufacturing cities like Manchester are also kind of becoming these, you know, smoky, difficult to live in places. Um, and then there's the great stink of the 19th century, where the Thames was so bad that in order for Parliament to even conduct business, they had to, you know, famously hang uh, sheets uh, of neutralizing, you know, kind of soaked in lye and things like that, in order to keep the stench from coming in. Uh, and that's how, and that's how we get modern plumbing in London is because uh, finally, it became so bad that indeed, the the state had to react uh, so yeah so there's this kind of sense across all of this period from the 17th 18th and into the 19th century trying to understand you know uh health better uh and and understanding it through a kind of concept of the body as a kind of full system immersion uh in the air and ultimately the water around them Absolutely incredible. So what role does scent play in 18th century fiction? So it's interesting because it's very genre specific. So we're, we're ultimately moving by the time we get to the late 19th century. And there's a great book on this called um, Uncommon Sense uh, that talks about 
the 19th century, by the time we get to that 19th century domestic fiction, you've got a firmly entrenched um, middle class, and they're the ones who are kind of smelling down. They aren't scented. They are kind of codified as not having scent, uh, but they're smelling the lower classes a lot in Victorian fiction. In the 18th century, what I realized was actually the middle is smelling up and down. Uh, and so the novel in this period is very famously the one of the ways that the culture creates what we think of as the modern middle class. The middling sorts have always existed, but the idea that the middle class kind of just wealthy enough to not be working, but not aristocratic, kind of doesn't know what the rules should be and are making up new rules for behavior to set themselves apart from both the aristocracy and from the working class is like one of the projects that the 18th century novel is doing, uh, is kind of establishing those rules. And they do it, you can see, by also kind of uh, making note a lot of the time in fiction uh, to the extravagant fragrances of the of the super wealthy, what we might think of as the 1%, the aristocracy, as well as the um, smells of working class life, the prox, like, for example, um, if we think about Austin's Mansfield Park, um, the heroine Fanny Price, her mother has married below her station and had a whole bunch of kids. And so they are living in comparatively impoverished conditions. And Fanny is the lucky one, quote unquote, who gets kind of plucked out of this space and sent to live with her wealthy family members in the titular Mansfield Park. And we see when she comes back as an adult, because Mansfield Park becomes untenable because it might be beautiful and it might be lavish, but it's also heartless and there's no there's no love for her there or there's very little love or she can't see what the love is. So she flees back home, but it, it's not home anymore. Uh, she can smell the cheese on the table. She can smell the dirt in the corners. She is so used to a household that has an army of largely invisible servants who are cleaning everything all of the time that she's and she's now in close quarters with her family of, you know, a bunch of people and can't help but notice both with her nose and her eyes the dirt and the kind of specificity and so we can see in fanny exactly that kind of oh she's you know risen enough to now uh identify working class smells as as foreign to her lived experience and so she's kind of literally caught in between worlds uh, in those kinds of ways. And we see it or smell it most viscerally uh, through her nose. That is so interesting. 
So one of the key scents that you focus on and that you mentioned earlier, of course, is tobacco. Mm -hmm. Now I'm in North Carolina, which has a long <laughs> history of tobacco farming and is still actually the nation's top tobacco producer today. So can you tell us about tobacco's place in 18th century England and how it was written about at the time? Yeah, so it's important to remember that, yeah, tobacco is a import uh, from North America, and that happened several centuries earlier. Uh, and so throughout the 18th century, uh, tobacco is a constant because it's being brought in constantly. And it's being consumed in different ways by different people at different points. So we all know smoked tobacco most kind of, I think, uh, fully. And that is largely pipe smoke until you get into the Regency period in the kind of very, very late 18th century into the 19th century. That's also when you see, um, so that, and that's when you see this, the cigarette uh, or the cigarillo uh, come into fashion. And so pipes, are kind of a constant, although they, where they are acceptable to consume shifts across the period, you'll always see them in gentlemen's clubs or as they were called, often called smoking clubs. But there was also the kind of snuff tobacco and snuff tobacco was so pervasive, like the, um, the ha like parliament had its own sort of snuff and a snuff box in the house of parliament that, you know, was kind of the community box until very, very recently in the history uh, of the house of parliament. And snuff was consumed not just by men, but by but everyone. Uh, it's really interesting to talk about uh, this as everyone has kind of gone super gaga over um, the Shondaland version of Queen Charlotte, yeah. because Queen Charlotte, of course, uh, in this period was nicknamed Snuffy Charlotte because she was remarkably fond of taking snuff and had her own special sort. And as many people did, you'd go to the tobacconist uh, and you would have a particular mixture, not just of tobacco, although there are different kinds of tobacco, but also potentially spices or flowers, or you'd, or it might be soaked in some kind of, you know, scented substance like eau de toilette, or these sorts of things to make your special sort. Uh, I, when I was at the Lewis Walpole Library, which is part of Yale University, which is where I wrote almost the entire first draft of this book, they, one day they kind of, the archivists kind of pulled me aside and they're like, you know, we have some of Horace Walpole's snuff. And I was like, wait, what? No way. And, and, and they didn't have exactly his snuff, it should be said, right? His snuff is still being made because that tobacconist still exists. Um, but they did indeed have it. And I was indeed like offered this little like, hey, do you want to take a pinch? And I was like, there are, there are things I will do for scholarship, but I, I think this might be this might be my line. So I, <laughs> I, I, I sniffed, but I did not snort. Uh, you take a snuff and there were the, the cover of my book shows uh, some ladies taking snuff in a variety of different ways. And uh, so different contortions of the pinch between your fingers or off of a wrist, yours or someone else's, there's all different kinds of ways of, of taking the pinch of snuff. 
uh, in kind of aesthetically pleasing ways, often to, you know, punctuate conversation or things along those lines. And again, this is an aristocratic, this is a rich people kind of affectation. And it is, you know, more or less acceptable at different stages, right? Snuff, calling Queen Charlotte Snuffy Charlotte is not a compliment to her. It coincided with a lot of other kind of bodily insults uh, to the queen at that particular moment in her public life. Uh, so it was not seen as an attractive habit. And certainly, you know, snuff taking makes you sneeze. Uh, snuff taking can do some really interesting things to the the moisture coming out of your face in different places, we'll put it that way. Um, so, you know, it's it comes with a certain amount of hazard. You might look cute while you're taking it, but, you know, if you're not cool and you sneeze or, you know, some, you know, you have to blow your nose and it's real gross, you know, all those sorts of things are also you know, in play. And depending on the work of literature um, or the kind of sympathy of the person who's writing about a real historical figure, you know, different parts of that habit will be emphasized in those kinds of ways. That's so interesting. So you do see it mentioned in uh, in fiction all the time. Yes. But for, for anybody who isn't super familiar with it, because it isn't really used so much anymore. What is snuff like specifically and how do you use it? So it's extremely finely milled powdered tobacco, um, which can either be um, taken uh, with no other additives or can be in the same way that uh, you can have um, vape pens of different flavors, uh, snuff functioned the same way. You could have different compounds added to your special sort to make it uh, smell differently as you snorted it up your nose. Uh, so you would take a very tiny pinch from a beautiful snuff box, usually. Uh, these were snuff boxes were often intimate gifts. Uh, when I was at the Walpole, uh, the snuff box that I was shown was uh, a gift from one of Walpole's friends. And on the cover of it is a portrait of his dog, uh, which is really adorable. Um, so it's this kind of, you have this beautiful object that you're flipping open, you're taking your pinch, you're holding it up to your nose using either your fingers or you're you know doing some elaborate hand movements uh, and you sniff and that is how you ingest a tobacco snuff. Wow. I'm so glad that you mentioned the snuff boxes because you do see some really beautiful ones turn up on like Antiques Roadshow and, and different things like that every once in a while. And they're, and they're so pretty um, and, and way fancier than you'd expect. So, of course, they were a very trendy accessory, right? And, and a lot of women had these very ornate snuff boxes. So how did women's use of snuff differ from men's or did it? You know, I don't know that there's um, a notable distinction between um uh, between the sexes in terms of snuff taking uh, the the gendered or the kind of taboo way of taking tobacco that was almost beyond the pale, although, as with all things, wealthy aristocratic women can get away with a lot more than everyone else. Uh, smoking was much more on the kind of taboo side. Uh, 
uh, than than snuff taking really ever was. Um, sometimes snuff taking would also be considered kind of shamefully luxurious, but that wouldn't just that would generally not be gendered in quite that way. Um, and I think in part because uh, the taking of snuff was also considered somewhat effeminate in to some people at some times in this period. Uh, and so men taking snuff uh, might be criticized for not kind of choosing more manly versions of ingestion of tobacco. Now, that said, th this is a period when people are saying that like drinking chocolate and tea and coffee are going to impossibly corrupt the morals of society. So, you know, this this is the thing, right? Uh, that, you know, much depends on who's, whose perspective you're talking from uh, in, in all of these sorts of substances that are coming in. There is always going to be, you know, you can imagine your, you know, very kind of nationalist, uh, kind of very stuffy kind of figure uh, who's naysaying all of these foreign substances that are coming in, uh, depending on, you know, whether it's being imported by way of France during the time of one of the many times of conflict with France. Uh, so that can also kind of add a valence at, at different points. Gosh, some things never change. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. And it's really distressing. <laughs> it is. And, uh, and speaking of, uh, of somewhat distressing things that don't change. So you, uh, you mentioned, of course, in the book, Hogarth, right? And the laughing audience where a man is taking snuff off the wrist of an orange seller. So when I read that, this immediately made me think of like Scarface and like the Wolf of Wall Street and other movies where people are snorting other substances off of various body parts. So I guess that impulse isn't a new thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, in no sense, I would say is tobacco snuff in this kind of way equivalent to something like cocaine in the Wolf of Wall Street. Although I think there, you could make a through line through a certain kind of decadence. Obviously those snuff boxes are often really elaborate. Uh, although I should note that, uh, you know, what survives for Antiques Roadshow is the kind of most beautiful and most durable. People are also like keeping snuff in uh, things that we might think of as disposable today. So what's really interesting is there's an archaeological kind of survey of London that's still ongoing, showing where kind of little bits and pieces of junk have been uncovered in different kinds of digs and that sort of thing. And the number of clay pipes, uh, which were considered disposable, uh, that show up in, in these kinds of surveys, as well as other kinds of you know, more like homely sorts of snuff boxes and things also kind of appear. Uh, and again, we've got visual and some narrative evidence of men and women of, uh, of, of all classes uh, kind of partaking in these kinds of ways. The middle class in fiction seems to want to scrub all that which I think is interesting, right? But the middle class in this period is trying to scrub a lot of things that are extremely common in both the upper and lower classes, right? This is a period where for 
example, uh, and I and knowing your your audience, uh, I think it's worth noting, right? Premarital sex, super common, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, especially among the working class who cannot afford uh, to be married until fairly late in their lives compared to the upper classes and uh wouldn't know it from reading uh, 18th century novels uh or at least the the ones that we're most familiar with uh you know or the work of austin and the, because they're operating in this kind of you know rarefied sphere of the middle class that's trying to kind of say oh no we want to impose a particular kind of sexual ethics in reaction to what they see happening among the classes quote unquote below them as well as the kind of sexual um flexibility of the aristocracy that was very common knowledge because it was printed in all the papers uh a lot of the time um when it kind of came out, uh, especially because that was the only way you could get divorced, right, was uh, through public lawsuit. Uh, so yeah, so it's it's really interesting to think about, um, you know, fiction is a great source for what a culture's noticing and anxious about, uh, not necessarily always an accurate representation of what's actually going on. Yes, that is so important. You cannot take these things totally literally because like nothing exists in a vacuum. You know, these people are reacting to their world, you know, and, and of course imposing their morals on it, as you say. So, um, so something else that comes up in this fiction a lot and something that people are still using in historical fiction, smelling salts. I think Yay. anybody with an interest in, in this kind of literature has definitely heard about these. So what were personal scenting devices and how did <laughs> Defoe's Journal of a Plague Year lead to their widespread use? Well, I think that, um, so the first thing to note is uh, if a woman, usually a woman, this was a pretty gendered um, kind of uh, device, although men could carry them. And if you, if you wanted your hero to be seen as really sympathetic, uh, to the plight of humanity around them, you had them carry a smelling bottle, not, not that they were going to use it, but they could offer it to others in the same way that, you know, you might have a handkerchief now. And there are two compounds that end up in a smelling bottle. One is scented vinegar, which is exactly what it sounds like, uh, vinegar um, in combination with something like lavender or another kind of distillate, um, which is a kind of gentler reviver. The other side would be smelling salts, which you can still, if you would like to smell them, you can. Um, it's ammonia bicarbonate or baker's ammonia. Uh, and so, and sometimes you'd have a you know, something that looked like a snuff box and it was really a sponge soaked with this kind of vinegar. Or you might have a kind of tubular device that had the vinegar on one end and the smelling salts on the other. Or you might just have the smelling salts in a vial. And that, and this is the kind of miniaturization of older forms of kind of protective smelling devices. Uh, so it, as Defoe talks about in the Journal of a Plague Year, which is the kind of, it, he's turning into fiction 
that feels like it's a real journal, the, the kind of last big plague outbreak in London, which happened when he was a child. And so it's mostly his family's memories of things like, you know, uh, of, of, of the dead being buried in mass graves and all those kinds of fun and exciting things. But what he notes is, right, that people would go around uh, with, you know, various kinds of personal scenting devices, almost the way that some folks now kind of have their own kind of personal HEPA filters around or, um, or those sorts of things, with the idea that these compounds of different plants and resins and things like that in something like a pomander or uh, other kinds of device or thrown into your fireplace to burn and sweeten the air would have a kind of antiseptic effect. And we know that some of these plants did have some level of antiseptic quality, whether it did anything to the air is I have not tested and I have not asked. Uh, but you know, again, we're talking about people who are doing the best they can with the amount of information that they have. And so you see, as we kind of move away from that kind of period, but this kind of, we've talked about the ways in which this is still a certain amount of inherited wisdom about the air you breathe in being kind of important to clean or preserve, um, you know, the idea of personal scenting devices kind of persist long past that kind of generations of plague. It's, it's hard to kind of break old habits in, in many ways. And in fact, you know, I know folks who uh, have, you know, little nasal sprays these days as we uh, continue to exist in a, in a global pandemic. Uh, and, and, it's, and it's the same, it's not exactly the same logic uh, by any stretch of the imagination, but the idea that we like, you know, fiddle with our noses uh, to, to, to corral disease or corral intense emotions, um, regulate the body's kind of reactions in different sorts of ways uh, becomes the function of the smelling bottle. And so the smelling bottle becomes the visual signifier, especially as we get to the end of the 18th century of either someone who is someone who's receiving a smelling bottle to the nose we are meant to understand has had some kind of massive shock and needs assistance as going through either emotional and or physical turmoil someone who is uh hitting the smelling bottle themselves too much uh those re readers would have known that this person can no longer smell if they're if they're huffing smelling salts all day long and i can i can tell you this from anecdote uh that this is indeed what happens so when i was writing this book and giving presentations at different places. I was at Chotton House, which is the library in Southern England near Winchester, that is the home of uh, the, the Knight family, which is Jane Austen's uncle and their collateral line. We know Austen spent an enormous amount of time reading the books in that library. She lived in a cottage right off uh, the property and her and the two Cassandras are buried in the church on the grounds. So I was at Shotton coming back after being a fellow there, giving a presentation in front of so many of my beloved friends and colleagues. And I had smelly handouts, which were little test tubes with different 
uh, elements of the things that I was writing about. So rose distillate and lavender and all kinds of things, including ammonia bicarbonate or smelling salts. And I always prefaced my remarks by saying, open it very quickly, wave it past your nose, close it very quickly, do not snort. And one of my friends involuntarily huffed, she's a footnote, uh, the great scholar Jenny Batchelor, uh, a, a genius of uh, the, the ladies magazine and the fashion magazines of the era. Uh, I unfortunately made it so that she couldn't smell for about three to four hours because oh, no. she took, uh, she took in a hit of uh, ammonia salt. I wish I could say that that was the worst thing that presentation did, but then it turned out that seated next to her was another uh, eminent uh, scholar and she had been washing her hands with lavender soap throughout her pregnancy when she had um, uh, morning sickness. And so the thing that I have everyone smell after the smelling salts to kind of counteract is, is the lavender because lavender distillate would be very commonly in smelling bottles as well. Well, it turns out that she still had a kind of emotional and physiological reaction that said, oh, if, if I smell lavender, I want to throw up. Oh. Uh, she did not, but it was a really important, I mean, those two examples are really good example of one, there are certain smells and certain compounds that retain very specific physiological effects across space and time. They do things to our bodies. But also, there are some smells that we can think of in lots of different kinds of ways and have very different kinds of reactions to, depending on how they have been in our lives or not uh, over the course of our lifetime. Uh, so the idea that smells can have very acute and specific effects that we can trace, as well as ones that we cannot predict because they are very quirky and historically and culturally specific. Uh, what a what a beautiful uh, kind of uh, snapshot uh, that I'm sorry to have inflicted on two of my beloved colleagues. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Now, I'm so glad that you mentioned the ammonia because you you talk in the book a little bit about uh, some of the effects that that can actually have on the body. And I didn't realize that ammonia can actually affect the endocrine system um, if you if you use it too much. So it, how would you describe this smell to people who haven't smelled it before? And what effect would it have on people using it over time? So, I mean, I think that a lot of us have encountered it. I mean, it's the smell, it's very much the smell of bleach and and and, and cleaning products in that kind of way. Um, and so it's pungent. It's not especially pleasant uh, and and by design. And in the past, and I and I mean our past, not like the 18th century past, but like in the earlier part of my lifetime in the 20th century, it would be considered part of the emergency kit that you would have to revive someone who had gone unconscious because it's so pungent that it causes someone to have a kind of reflexive reaction. Now, it is no longer used for that purpose because if, say, you've gone unconscious because of a head or neck injury, it would be very bad for you to jolt in the way that you would if you were presented with ammonia salts. 
it is still used by professional athletes, especially powerlifters like me, although I don't use it, but other people who powerlift um, and people who need kind of explosive action, you know, action. So it's sold under various kinds of names, things like nose torque and things like that. And just like snuff and different kind of uh, floral vinegars of the past, you can get it laced with coffee and fruit and all kinds of additional smells. I have not dared to purchase any of that to see what it actually smells like. Uh, I can't imagine it's remarkably pleasant, I have to say, even with a coffee chaser. But yeah, it, uh, but it does have, I mean, it's, uh, it's it it stimulates the body to have a reflexive reaction and if you consume it regularly or inhale it regularly you have the ability to go anomic or anosmic in other words you cease to have the ability to smell uh, and this i love mansfield park as a re uh, as a example uh but very famously lady bertram uh, in that novel, who is insensate in all kinds of ways. She drinks a lot. She doesn't seem to be aware of any of the scandalous stuff going on in her house. And one of the ways that her obliviousness is encoded is the fact that she always has a smelling bottle kind of near to her hand. Uh, and that that seems to be part of the package of, oh, this woman has obliterated every sense of her body uh, you know, and you can read that sympathetically or unsympathetically, but it is certainly uh, not uh, beneficial to to Fanny and the folks around her. Wow. Now, we have a lot of authors and readers in our audience, and I think that they'll agree that describing scent is a great way to bring historical settings and characters to life. And especially in romance, it can play a powerful part in characters falling in love. So how was scent used to describe people in 18th century fiction, especially romantic leads? Were there any cliches used to convey desirability? What's really interesting about the difference between our modern historical romances, and this goes all the back, way back to Georgette Heyer in this way, um, and, the, and what I found in the 18th century is that generally speaking, you don't get a lot of description of bodily odor between romantic leads in the period. Um, and I, I have some ideas about why that is, right? Um, I, I think it's largely about kind of the project of making this kind of unscented space between um, in, in those kinds of ways. Uh, and so that's that's been what's really been quite striking to me is like there's not that kind of sense of oh i'm going to talk in these kind of very heightened terms about uh how uh, how great her hair smells today or those sorts of things um which is probably accurate right the when you've when you when you're in a time of uh either an enormous amount of hair powder or uh, just, you know, wash day being once a week, uh, the, the best you can hope for is to not smell of much of anything or anything particularly strong and notable. Um, so yeah, the, the kind of sanitized nature 
very much. Now that's mainstream, what we might think of as like marriage plot, romance plot sort of fiction. There is a bit more in other kind of sub genres, um, but usually it's still sense around people rather than the scent of people. In the 18th century, if you can smell somebody, they're being coded as not you, as the other. Um, and this is kind of one of the problematic things of the period, right? Is like, uh, this starts much earlier. Uh, I always think of the moment of first contact between um, uh, white traders who come to, uh, to Japan and we have the accounts from both sides about that first meeting and both sides go away and talk to their countrymen and say, you won't believe how much these people stink because they stink to one another, but uh, because the English smell of cheese and dairy products and, you know, all that sort of thing, which of course they wouldn't have realized at all. And so the smell of other people, as I talk about in my book, is often a kind of derogatory kind of kind of stance so instead romance comes from or erotic scent comes from the space that you're in right um you're in a floral bower you know you're kind of smelling sweet uh something on the breeze that sort of thing uh to kind of emphasize that this is a you're in a natural space. Uh, you're not. You've all. All artifice is gone in in those sorts of ways. Right. I know you mentioned in um in a couple of cases people were imagining that their love interest might have sweet breath. I suppose um in contrast to everybody else. Right. It's very much an imaginative leap. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, dear. So looking at the bathing and dressing practices at the time, I'm always struck by how many steps there are. Yeah, you make the important point that personal smell isn't as simple as like a spritz of perfume. So how did people wash at this time? And, and what kind of steps did they take to make themselves smell nice? Yeah. So the first thing that's important to remember is that washing is really labor intensive. Mm-hmm. And uh, especially in the way that we think about it, right? Like we take showers and baths that consume an enormous amount of water. Uh, and if you're thinking about people who are trying to do that in the 18th century, they're kind of having to fetch that water. There's no plumbing. Uh, and so either somebody else is getting it for you uh, and heating it or and hopefully heating it, um, or you yourself are kind of uh, kind of collecting it. And so day-to-day -day washing would be like a small ewer, what we get like a pitcher and a basin um, to wash the hands, the feet, uh, the, you know, the face, um, you know, very kind of standing bath sort of situation. So not kind of full bodily immersion. Because for many again, remember the idea that the body is super permeable uh is still really strong throughout the period and so you want to limit the amount of time that someone is totally nude uh even in the kind of benefit of bathing so 
what is happening on a daily basis is you are changing the clothing that is closest to you, which for women would be a shift. And so the idea is that a lot of what we're cleaning off um, uh, is actually being absorbed by the shift, which is a thing that can be removed and uh, sent for laundry. Um, and that's also protecting the exterior clothes so that they don't have to be washed as often because all of these uh, cloth is also a luxury good. So the number of changes of clothes that somebody might have is is much, 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 much smaller than we would have. Um, you know, one to you know, one, two, three suits of clothing in terms of the working class and uh, and and kind of constantly being made over and, and shifted until they were rags that could be sold and turned to paper. But shifts you'd have enough for, you know, several days uh, so that they could be washed separately. So a lot of cleanliness is about the cleanliness of one's linen. Uh, men had a had a comparable kind of either full shift like uh, women just tucked differently into britches um, or, uh, you know, sometimes uh, other configurations, depending on what decade you're talking about. Um, hair washing is a similarly kind of uh, wash day sort of situation. Be and so you're keeping it uh, as clean as you can through brushing the kind of addition of powders designed to help clean kind of like dry shampoo. Um, or you're keeping it in a style for us, you know, however long uh, you uh, can uh, you can afford to if you're like doing a kind of powder situation, that sort of deal. And this is also one of the reasons why um, many men shave their heads and wear wigs. Women sometimes wore wigs, sometimes wore hair pieces. Uh, and of course, at different points wore their hair natural. Uh, what we might think of as the pixie cut comes in during Austin's time uh, for a kind of a la Titus. Uh, sort of uh, easy upkeep sort of style. And so there's a lot of kind of advertisements for various scented waters to be part of that kind of daily toilet of not full immersion bathing, but kind of, you know, cleaning the visible parts of you. Um, toothbrushes did exist, uh, not all used them, but tooth powders existed. Um, for folks to clean their teeth if they if they still had them. Uh, and then depending on the the uh, decade you're talking about, the addition of other kinds of uh, treatments like hungry water or things along those lines, uh, compounds applied to the face uh, and and possibly hair and hands to, do the same things that we want them to do now, right? Clear the skin, remove redness, take care of spots, uh, make the hair grow long and lustrous, the whole nine yards. Uh, but yeah, so cleanliness is still being valued in this period. It's just using a heck of a lot less water uh, because water is a labor intensive part of the element. Mm, yes, definitely. 
So you also talk about sulfur, which isn't something that people really think about anymore. So what role did sulfur play in 18th century life? And how did people think about the smell? Yeah. So, I mean, it's stinky. It's raw. It smells like eggs. It's, I cannot stress to you enough, like people still agreed it was stinky in the 18th century. Sulfur is what is added, generally speaking, to natural gas lines, which don't inherently have a smell, so that people can smell when there's a gas leak uh, these days. Uh, sulfur is something that will be familiar to folks who have tried more natural kind of acne treatments and things along those lines, uh, because it is often a compound used in those kinds of ways. Um, it is long been associated with different kinds of medicinal treatments in different sorts of ways. And in the 18th century, if you're going to Bath uh, or if you're going to another spa town, what you're going to go soak in and possibly drink is mineralized waters, uh, many of which are naturally sulfuric. So while sulfur also had the kind of sulfur and brimstone vibe of, you know, the 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 demonic, the hellish, and indeed uh, tourists in this time who are exploring the world where there are active volcanoes are noting the kind of sulfuric smell of that activity closer to home sulfur is the smell of 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 your of wellness as we might say um or of kind of uh different kinds of health treatments uh so i cannot stress to you enough spa water at bath is not fun to drink uh, it's not tasty but it would have been understood as medicinal uh it, because of that sulfuric and mineral content uh so yeah that's it it was it was the surprising chapter to realize oh sulfur is this compound that has multiple different meanings that are being kind of explored depending on whether a text is trying to kind of have a vaguely gothic horror vibe, uh, you know, and introducing the supernatural versus when it comes up because the characters are going to a spa and taking the waters and, and all of those sorts of things. Right. Yeah, it is. It is a little bit of a, a different vibe unless you're writing something like um, Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Uh, but yeah, that that smell at the baths it is so distinctive you know I mean it's been 20 years since I've been there almost, <laughs> and I mean I can still smell it you know it's still in there somewhere so of course one of my favorite parts of the book is when you're talking about the supernatural and the smell of sulfur so what superstitions were there about the smell was this something that uh, as you were saying you know apart from the baths is this, is this something that is kind of freaky people out I think it's I think it's less uh, about freaking people out than it's something that is associated so closely with things that come out of the ground. And sometimes that's healing water and sometimes that's, you know, magma, right? And so one of the things that's important to remember is the 18th century is the beneficiary of over a century of travel writing of people going all over the world um, sometimes because of the colonial project and sometimes uh, for other kinds of exploration reasons, but that they're all writing these accounts that then kind of 
permeate through pop culture in different kinds of ways. And so sometimes that's theatrical experiences, sometimes that's things that people would read in the newspaper. Um, but it, and that's how it filters into fiction, right? It's not necessarily, I have experienced personally a volcano, but I know from the horrific tragedy in the middle of the century of the Lisbon earthquake, everything that I read or that my, you know, grandma read about the Lisbon earthquake was the sulfuric smell because it was an earthquake that led to these kinds of, you know, small explosions and things along those lines, uh, so that it becomes part of the collective memory and the collective reference in that way. Wow, yes. So things that come out of the ground or, or things even that you put into them. So, uh, of course, I was struck by your description about how they used to bury bodies inside of churches. But somehow it never occurred to me that people would obviously smell them decomposing, you know, as they're in church. And, and when, you know, of course, they'd use the incense and everything to cover that up. I can't even imagine. So what did churches smell like at this time? Was this like a common problem? I mean, I think that uh, generally speaking, you've got enough rock and also just volume of air around you so that if you're in a big enough church that it's burying people in a crypt, um, that you're probably mostly okay, right? In, except in those moments of mass death, right? Like the, the time that this becomes a problem is during like the early 18th century in the last swings of the plague when you just you're just kind of dealing with open pits and you're stacking folks really deep so uh and defoe describes a church that is um full of the smell of those kinds of prophylactic different kinds of resins and compounds and flowers and herbs and things like that as people are bringing them in um in in part because the smell of death is all around them but even more so for the kind of perceived safety that those those scented compounds bring uh but yeah by the time you're you're talking about the later 18th century you know your average church would smell like human beings right like like the living human beings uh not as much the dead uh in in those kinds of ways a small mercy. <laughs> so you talk a little bit about historical sites attempting to recreate the smells of the past, good and bad, for a more immersive experience. So how can recreating historical smells add to our understanding of the past? It's a really interesting phenomenon and one that I'm still kind of grappling with. Uh, the one that I recommend to folks if you are able to get to London is uh, Dennis Sever's house. Uh, or Seaver's house, um, which is in Spitalfields. And it was the passion project of a man who bought the house in the 1990s, I believe, and not only kind of had each uh, floor of the house become a kind of reimagined time capsule of a particular decade of the long 18th century, but then lived in the house as best he could, according to the, the, the kind of practices of the period, so that a body is moving through these spaces and doing what bodies do 
to humanize the the space in that kind of way, which is a really fascinating uh, testimony to the kind of commitment of some people to to recreation and reenactment, right? Uh, it's not artificial. It's what happens when a human body comes in contact and does and does stuff. And and we come back to the challenge of you know we can recreate all we want, but we can't recreate what the what our noses uh, perceive. We can't make give ourselves at least at this point 18th century noses. Uh, and so, while it's a fascinating experiment, always uh, these places like Jarvik, the Viking Museum that has like uh, different smell stuff, or uh, a friend of mine went to Hampton Court and brought me back like the scratch and sniff card that they have created um, for Hampton Court Palace uh, for their kind of uh, early modern exhibit. I don't know, it's, it all, it, it, it seems like a glorious experiment often doomed to kind of fall flat because it's trying to convince us that we can enter the past in that kind of way. And we we can't fully um but it's fun to try <laughs> yeah it would, it would be amazing to have that kind of immersion it would give you um a different perspective certainly as an author you know or as somebody is trying to explain that yeah there's like three different uh attempts that i can think of off the top of the dome to recreate one of the many uh fragrances created for marie antoinette from the recipes that have survived and they're fun. They're super fun. Uh, I started the book by talking about one of them, uh, Siage de la Reine, uh, and I own another one uh, by Lupin called Black Jade. And it, they're fun, but not, but, you know, talking about authenticity, uh, kind of, they're, they're about as historically accurate as any biopic would be, which is to say that the point is not about being, you know, 100% faithful, but about trying to communicate something else, uh, which I think is a really interesting and important endeavor. And I think that's, uh, you know, we can do worse. Absolutely, we sure can. So this book, I, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. There's so much incredible information in it. So where can we find more about you and your work? Yeah, so I own the means of production, uh, as I have for, I realized the other day, over half my life at EC Friedman, uh, friedman.com, where you can also sign up for um, mailing list and updates on this project and other projects that I do. Um, I have uh, shifted gears in some ways towards the study of uh, folks who create and art outside of the logics and constraints of mass capitalism. And that includes everything from 18th and 19th century never published handwritten fiction, uh, which we could talk about a different time, uh, all the way to today's uh, new media streamers on like Twitch and YouTube. Uh, and so you can self-select about which of the projects you're most interested in uh, at my website. And then uh, Reading Smell is now out in paper, which uh, is really, really exciting. So I'm hoping it finds a readership with uh, the folks that I wrote it for, which are uh, folks beyond the academy who are really interested in thinking about the ways that, um, you know, art and history come together. 
Perfect. Yes. And, and I'm, I'm sure they'll absolutely love it. Emily, thank you so much for being our guest today. My deep pleasure. Thank you so much. Once again, I'd like to thank Dr. Emily Friedman for being our guest this week. Her book is Reading Smells in 18th Century Fiction, and it's out now. You can find her at ecfriedman.com and get a discount code for the book in this episode's post on our Instagram. I'd also like to thank our fabulous patrons on Patreon, Melanie Baker, Michael Beckwith, Bethany Bennett, Andy Christopher, Charlotte Collings, Rachel Cooney, Michelle Dunbar, James Finch, Brian Fullerton, Adriana Herrera, Sean Ingham, Emma Young, Miriam Caceres, Scott Lohman, Janine Meberg, Jessica Miller, Lizzie Ortmeyer, Shannon Roth, Icy Sedgwick, Catherine Rowley-Williams, and Denny White. Thank you all so much. If you would like to support the show, you can find us on patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory, or you can rate, review, and subscribe, or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Mastodon, or Blue Sky at Dirty Sexy History. We will post photos from today's show on our Instagram. You can check out our website at dirtysexyhistory.com and find links to our guests and online merch store there too. There's all kinds of great stuff up there and we're adding new articles all the time. So stop by and say hello. We'd love to hear from you. See you next time.